0: Bam, 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 bam,
1: bam, welcome back, everybody, to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Lisa Linky, your co-host on this magical journey through self-help. And across from me in the ethernet is Misty Stinnett, your other co-host in this magical journey of self-help help emphasis on that you help. <laughs> and help us today is a very special episode my friends longtime loyal listeners new soon-to-be longtime loyal listeners people who have just randomly dropped in on this episode oh my gosh we're excited for you but before we get to that let me just do a little bit of housekeeping we release two episodes a week full frontal fridays like you're hearing now where we typically review a popular or classic self-help book and give you the tips, the tricks, the highs, the lows, the ins, the outs, ups, the downs, the yays, the boos, the y- the yays, the nays, all of the good stuff in under 45 minutes to an hour to tell you if this is a good investment of your time and money and energy. I mean, I immediately think that it's terrible, but Misty is adept and adroit at finding what is so good about useful Oh, casual um,
0: drop of adroit.
1: Excuse yeah. me. Did you um, write How to Win Friends and Influence People? No, but my friend read it and told me about it. <laughs> mm. And whether it's a garbage fire that you should avoid at all costs. We cuss cost oh, yeah. because we're fucking people with things to say. On uh, Tuesdays, we follow up <laughs> with the book on homework. We have special guests or articles, etc. cetera. But you've caught us on a special day, friends. Friends, oh my God. Romans, countrymen, you've caught us on a special day. Misty, tell us why. Listeners, friends, lovers, mm-hmm.
0: we have done it again. We have tricked a real-life author into <laughs> coming on the podcast We could not be more excited. Today, we have author Ben Sheehan, who wrote the book, OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? A non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work. Ben, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Yay!
0: Let me really quickly tell you all about Ben. If you haven't already heard our episode reviewing his book, it's fantastic. We cover, Lisa so beautifully covers what Ben covered of Article 1 of the Constitution. And it does this amazing job of making a really inaccessible document seem very accessible and funny and educational. And I feel like I learned so much just from Lisa's like 50-minute review of the first part of the book. So it's stellar. It's stellar buy the book, listen to our episode. You will not regret it. Mm-mm. And you will be able to kind of have an air of superiority around your friends, which is really what this podcast is all about. So very quickly, for those of you who missed that episode, yes, Lisa's I carry like it, cradling right now, her
1: copy as of the book. Casually slide into tyranny. I'm constantly looking things up. <laughs>
0: I also have my mini constitution, my pocket constitution in my mm-hmm. desk right near me. Mm-hmm. So Ben Sheehan is a former award-winning executive producer at Funny or Die, so he's very boring. Mm-hmm. He founded OMG WTF Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, Florida, to teach voters about state executive races during the 2018 midterms. The Hollywood Reporter listed him as one of entertainment's 35 rising executives under 35, and OMGWTF's Gerrymander Jewelry was a finalist for Fast Company's world-changing ideas in 2019. In 2016, he helped register 50,000 voters through digital videos as the executive director of Save the Day. The projects he's been involved with have received over a billion views. I mean, I'm just going to leave right now because I'm never going to catch up. Ben, I I had the opposite
1: (laughs) reaction. I was like, Ben, how lucky for you to come on and talk to two women who have probably 100,000, 200,000 listens between them. So congratulations. You're welcome.
2: Thank you. No, I feel the same as you, Lisa. I think it now. Now it's two against one.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, Lisa once gave me the homework to register four people to vote. And this was like what back in June or July and I was like okay I've got 4 months like that's one a month I will find someone so 50,000 is astounding.
2: It is and I was I think I was most happy about it because it was the majority of them were uh, voters under under 30 and that was really exciting. So like first-time so time voters, were, really. Exactly, first-time yeah. voters, yeah. Yeah. That
0: is amazing. So thanks. So Ben, I know you've done a ton of press for your book. I'm sure you've been on a million interviews and talking segments, but we're a self-help podcast, and while you're here to talk about your book and talk to us a little bit about politics, we want to ask the hardest question first. Would you say the Constitution is basically the first self-help document? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on As and go help yourself. Thank you so much. But seriously,
0: how can the Constitution or our perception of the Constitution be viewed as self-help or can it?
2: I have t- two answers to that. One is that it's more of a self-help book for people who were currently in power at the time. It's also a self-help book for the small number of people that could have a direct say in the government, and that direct say has been expanded over time. So the weird thing is that the Constitution was one of the things that led to it being written, and I didn't have this in the book, but it was the fact that lower classes of people in in Massachusetts, working-class Americans, had suddenly been taxed at higher rates than they had been under Britain and they were upset about this and so they revolted and they took over a courthouse in Massachusetts and a few months later in early January a couple months before the constitution was well, the the convention happened they stormed a weapons arsenal and some people were killed it's called Shay's rebellion and a lot of those rebels ended up getting elected to seats in the Massachusetts state legislature. And so other states looked at this and were like, holy shit, people that were taxing sort of at the bottom of the economic food chain are revolting and taking seats in the government away from us. We're scared about these domestic uprisings. So how do we create a central government to help other states stop this sort of class revolt? And that is one of the main things that led to the constitutional Convention. So it's sort of this weird double-sided coin where part of it is to find a way to preserve the sort of elite ruling class that was majority you know, white men who owned property. But the other part of it is that they did give residents of states a way to have a say in the government, and that was through elections for the House of Representatives. That was the only part of the government that people could have a say in because the state legislatures decided the electors. In most states at the time, the state legislatures for the first 100 years plus decided senators. We still don't decide the judges. So the only part of the federal government we actually could have a say in was the House. But since then, we've expanded it. So now we elect senators directly. Every state lets us use a popular vote to determine the electors. So it's both a very small self-help book for sort of we the people, the ordinary citizens and non-citizens, and mostly a self-help book for state legislators and people in power at the time it was written.
1: I have a follow-up. I mean, but first I want to say, holy shit. Like, (laughs) are you considered like a constitutional scholar now?
2: I don't know if I'm a constitutional scholar. I didn't go to law school. I don't teach the Constitution yet. Well, yeah. But I do think that part of it, you know, I did, I've been around politics my entire life. I studied it my entire life. And I feel like in the books that I've read about the Constitution, it's a lot of very smart law professors trying to dumb themselves down and still kind of being a little unreachable. I think of myself as a dumb person trying to smart myself up and hopefully bringing people with me. So it's a bit of a different approach, but, you know, there are things that I think may be certain professors are people who talk about the Constitution kind of gloss over that I find fascinating. And I think maybe as a layperson are fascinating. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned those because I think it really frames the document in a, in a way that we we haven't always
1: seen it. That's brilliant. So I would ma- maybe you're a constitutional historian or an, an avid constitutionalist. Nope. Here is my question. Knowing what you know about the history of the Constitution and why it was created and how and by whom, does it make you more confident in our current political crisis or less?
2: (laughs) It actually makes me more confident because I think- This is really really a question for me. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I I think it makes me more confident because there are so many things that we think are in there that aren't actually in there. Like I think for a lot of people, we look back on this document, by the way, it's the oldest constitution still in use of any country in the world. And we think of it as something is very old and antiquated and sort of, you know, stopping progress. But there are a lot of things that we assume are in there that actually aren't in there. I mean, even things about who can vote. I've been hearing my, my entire life that, you know, the Constitution only said that white men who owned property could vote. And none of that's true. It doesn't say anything about white men voting or men voting or property owners voting. But what it did do is it left it up to the states. And the reason being that if it specified who actually could proactively vote a lot of states wouldn't have ratified the document. You needed nine of the 13 states at the time. So they said, we're going to make voting rights who actually can vote in each state. It's up to the state. But here's the things that they vote for. They can vote for the House. They, you know, If their state legislature lets them, they can vote to help decide the electors. But what I learned is that it also doesn't say anything about uh, African-Americans not being able to vote or women not being able to vote. It left it up to the states and for the first 20 years under the constitution women could vote in new jersey free black people could vote in new jersey in fact almost a dozen states african americans who were not slaves could vote up until you know almost the mid 1800s so there are a lot of things that we've been taught about the constitution like you know african americans got voting rights with the 15th amendment women got voting rights with the 19th but these things really just protected their rights from being taken away if they already had them So it just goes to show that our government is way more reliant on state governments and local governments, but really state governments, than it is a federal government. And I think when we're trying to make progress and and advance progress and expand democracy, it's really important to know where the obstructions are. And I think they're way more at the individual state level than they are at the federal level.
0: That is so interesting. And it makes me wonder, I was so surprised to hear in your book, that it was actually recommended that we rewrite the Constitution every 19 years, right? Throw it out, write a new one for the changing times, but we've never done that. Do you think that we should start doing that?
2: Well, I think we should definitely be amending it more often than it has been. If you think about the instances where it's been amended, we've had 27 amendments, and 10 of them happened all at once. So the Bill of Rights happened all together in 1791. So if you're talking about individual times the Constitution has been amended, it's on 18 occasions and over the course of 231 years, 230 years. So... We need to amend it more than we have, and the entirety of Article 5 of the document talks about the amendment process. They wanted us to change this. And what you're mentioning is Thomas Jefferson writing to James Madison saying that he thought the Constitution should be amended every night or written anew every 19 years because it's like expecting a coat you wore as a child to fit you as a grown adult times change, people change, laws change, norms change. And so the document should adapt with the changing society, not a society, you know, sticking to something that's outdated.
0: And basically the country was like, you don't know me, dad. Like, (laughs) I'm
1: going to keep my coat. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like whenever people say, you know, if the framers would have wanted, it's like, well, but here's actual evidence that the framers expected the, the document to change. That's so interesting.
0: Next question, Ben, what is it like walking around with such a big brain? Is that hard? (laughs) Okay.
2: I don't think I have a big brain. I think I have a weird, nerdy obsession with something that, you know, I'm always fascinated by information that I feel like is either sort of intentionally changed or withheld in a deceptive fashion. And whether that's, you know, the real history of what, what happened in our country, whether it's, you know, our founding document. I always feel, you know, it always motivates me more when I know that there's been some effort along the way to spin something in a way that it doesn't actually exist. And that makes me motivated to like, you know, broadcast the truth rather than, you know, accept these sort of spins over time.
0: That's exactly how we feel about self-help. So what has it been like to publish your first book?
2: It was really strange because the sort of the how this it happened very quickly and i was you know during the work i was doing in 2018 we were focused on state executive races specifically governor secretary of state and attorney general and at the time everyone was so focused on the house of representatives on the senate as well but there were over 70% of all governors secretaries of state and attorneys general that were up for election in 2018 and they were getting almost no attention, except for a few governor's races. But the power of these offices is astounding, even if they're not in our state. In most states, the secretary of state is the, the head of elections. So if you want fair elections in your state, that's the, the person who's, you know, at the end of the day is largely going to make that happen or make Brian it happen. Brian Kemp. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Jeb Bush, 2000. I mean, there are
2: so many examples. Ken Blackwell in 2004, a lot of experts look back and think that he swung the election for George Bush because he delivered uh, broken voting machines in African-American districts. He was African-American, and he delivered broken voting machines to African-American districts. He also delivered like one voting machine to colleges. Kenyon College, which has a few thousand students, had literally one voting machine was given to the school. So they purposely did this, and it, I think the voting differential it was maybe you know a few tens of thousands, maybe sixty, seventy thousand, and experts think it was like you know disenfranchised over a hundred thousand uh, voters so secretaries of state disenfranchising the vote sort of below everyone's radar has been happening for for a long time, and it took a secretary of state having the power to influence or oversee their own election for for governor to make people sort of wake up to this thing again at the state level that's been happening for far too long because we've been so focused on the on the federal level but for writing a book it was sort of this lack of awareness around state government races or just just government in general people didn't even know that their state had a secretary of State they thought I was talking about Rex Tillerson or Jeff Sessions at the time when I said a state attorney general and I started looking at my at civics education my own background and so I dug up my pocket constitution from eighth grade my eighth grade government class I was lucky to get one And I was reading it, and I just thought it was so inaccessible, but how do I, you know, kind of find a way to bring people up to speed? And I looked, and there had been some versions of this that were done, but the most recent version I could find was literally from the 1950s. Every pronoun was he, and it was, like, extremely narrow-minded and sexist. And, you know, there hadn't been something kind of done like this in, like, the last 70 years, so I wanted to do something that was very modern and contemporary but really conveyed the underlying information to kind of give people a foundation to get involved in democracy.
0: Well, you totally nailed it. I mean, it just feels like a book you can also pick up off the coffee table and get something if you just open to a page. And just the layout of it is so cool. The way there's like, you know, little bubbles that explain something that just came. It's just, it's a stunning book. And I am so grateful that you wrote it because I've opened my pocket constitution a few times. and been like, I'm gonna read this. And then I look at it and I go, maybe later. And then I close it. And that's as far as I've gotten until your book.
2: Oh, well, thank you. And I I have to say my friend, Jesse Benjamin, who's a designer in uh, Los Angeles, came up with the sort of interior design of how the breakouts work and everything. So there were definitely many minds other than mine that helped make the the layout sort of match the information and, and put it in a more digestible way.
0: That's awesome. And we're very curious, what was the thing that most surprised you? about writing a book?
2: Well, first of all, the speed at which it happened, I sort of put this together. Originally I wrote a maybe a 15, 18 page version of this, like re- huge, just really condensed summary that I was gonna put on my website, omgwtf.votes. And I thought about it and I was like, maybe this is a, a book. And I, I kind of had it in the back of my mind and I just ran into a friend at, at a meeting and sent it to him and then ended up, like it happened very quickly the whole process. But the most, the strangest thing about the process is how little time per like the calendar with the publisher, I had to write the book. So I got the deal, the deal closed at the end of May or, or almost mid June of last year. And then I had to turn in a first draft by July 31st. So I had what yeah,
0: four weeks to break down the constitution in a digestible way. With humor? It would take me a a month to do the humor pass. (laughs) Well, I
2: had that. I had an outline. Uh, I had an outline already. So I kind of but I basically for a month, month and a half, you know, did nothing. I worked 18 hours a day and put out a draft and then sent it around to a few constitutional law professors and experts. And what did I get right? What did I get wrong? What did I miss? And so i thankfully I had some some really smart people, you know, advise me on that. But it was the hard because of the time frame. I mean, it's it's not a long document, but it's so dense. And there are so many things that you kind of miss. And it's like, oh, well, actually, that grammar at the time means this. And so parsing that out and also looking at, you know, articles and other civics resources to see, you know, to compare and contrast these different interpretations. But the time frame, because it was on a, a crash schedule, was so I mean, debilitate. I mean, there were. I had many sleepless nights. I. I I mean, I some some. I almost didn't sleep two nights in a row. I mean, it was not good for my health. To be quite honest with you, that's purely because of the rushed schedule. But it was an incredibly rewarding process, and I really have to say, you know, the people at at Hachette Book Group and, and Black Dog and Leventhal really were amazing to work with, and I and I felt very lucky to be you know working with with people that that supported what I wanted to do, and you know weren't um, you know spinning it or changing it into something which I which I have heard happen with other authors.
0: Yeah, they give you a page one rewrite, and they're like, "What if this book took place in space?" Exactly.
1: <laughs> and then you're like, "I don't know what to do with that." Well, now that you've been through this process, do you want to write another book? And if so, what would be the topic?
2: There are two other versions of the, oh, well, not versions of the book, but one other version of the book and one other book. There's a, a Spanish version of it, so it's available in, in Spanish. And then there's also a, a journal about gerrymandering, OMGWTF is gerrymandering, which is more of like kind of like a novelty thing, but it does have facts and descriptions and explanations of gerrymandering. But the thing I'm really excited about is that there's a kid's version coming out next year. So I don't know when next year, but in the, I think in the first half, it's like kid-appropriate, ages 8 to 12, and I worked with a really amazing kids illustrator and a co-author, and they did an amazing, amazing job. So I'm super excited because the feedback I've gotten is like from teachers is like, we like it, but you know, you didn't have to swear. And I'm like, well, I wrote this for people in their 20s and 30s who didn't get civic education. So I wasn't thinking like high school textbook, but this is really safe for kids eight to 12. I mean, really any sort of anyone in, in grade school and even into, into middle school. I'm really excited about that. that. So that comes out next year.
0: I'm so excited because you gotta get them young, right? And then it won't have to be this unlearning and this relearning.
2: Well, the person who kind of translated it for for kids, uh, her name is Brianna Demont, and she did an unbelievable job. I mean, she the tone, the jokes. I mean, her joke pitches are hilarious. They they work for all ages. She did a really amazing, amazing job. She crushed it. So it's it's largely due to her that uh, that it's going to you know be what it is.
1: Ben, you know we're a self help podcast. We're probably. The strangest interview that you've had in promoting this book, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> the strangest, the strangest outlet or you know setup, maybe angle, yeah, mm-hmm. angle. But have you read any self-help books? If so, which ones, and did you enjoy them? I've
2: been reading so many books about democracy and politics. I mean, I guess you know a, 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 for for the same reasons that. This book, I guess, could be thought of as a self-help book. So many of those. It's all sort of like, what what's going wrong? Like, how do we fix this? What is this? I will say there is one self-help book that I I guess is a self-help book. A friend of mine is a a, a journalist named Liz Plank, and she wrote a book <gasps> called For the Love of Men. You know Liz oh, Plank? Oh, we
0: covered it, and we you love, love it. You know, Oh, Liz my God. Plank. It is... <laughs> Okay, we're going to fangirl out for a second. Please tell Liz thank you for that book. I that gave me so much compassion, understanding, a perspective shift. I was like, "Oh my god, we do need a men's movement in addition to all the feminism that's happening." I sent it to my boyfriend, to all of my Male friends, I was like, everyone needs to read this book and understand what is happening for men. And it was just, it was one of the books that absolutely blew me out of the water.
1: Also, she liked one of our Instagram posts when we we posted (laughs) that book. Not to brag, not to brag. But she knows that we covered it. So I feel very cool right now.
2: She's the best. And I'm doing, I think I'm doing an Instagram, well, I guess it will be before this episode comes out, but I'm doing an Instagram live with her on Monday about. The Constitution. I loved her book because it really helped. I, I kind of just went through my life and looked at like where the the toxic influences, if they if I was around them, came in, or where where I felt pressure to act a certain way or think a certain way. And it's really interesting to look back on that now, years removed, and knowing like you know where and why did that pressure manifest itself, and like where did I where did I get it in my head that this is how men are supposed to behave. Or how how early did that come? At what are, I mean, sort of like indoctrination, really? At what points did that happen? And so I really found it interesting for sort of to identify like where those sort of subtle influences come in and paint this picture of you know what I guess gender identity is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, and particularly around toxic masculinity, like yeah. I can't unsee it. Like once your eyes are open to it, you can't unsee it. So our president refusing to wear a mask. I just kept thinking about the quote that started the book, which was that like toxic masculinity is the greatest threat to mankind. It's like, yeah, it really is.
2: I mean, it's everywhere. It's in every advertisement it's in sports it's in our media it's in it's in it's so in our many government stories. I mean when our you government yeah I mean even thinking about it just from like an early age it's like you know I was you know this is this is the color that's for boys this is the color that's for girls these are the toys for boys these are the toys for girls these are the things you're supposed to do well you know be a man it's just it's so deceptive and just just the extent of it I mean like systemic doesn't even begin to cover it it's just like bombardment all the time.
0: Yeah, it's baked constant, yeah, yeah, avalanche constantly. I could wax poetic about this book forever because I just think it's stellar. We'll put a link to that episode in show notes.
1: There's two episodes because we did it a two-parter. Oh, right.
0: It was a two-parter because we didn't want to shortchange it and Lisa yeah. was blowing my mind with her review. So honestly, don't even listen to the episode, just go buy the book. <laughs> so, it's a great book. But switching back to your book, Ben, how did you feel about your very first book Coming out not only during a pandemic, but during one of the most insane election cycles in American history.
2: So, originally, the release date was March 10th. Congrats. And so, we had been playing, we had been planning, you know, everything. And at the last minute, uh, you know, I want to say it was maybe November, we had this conversation. And I was like, look, the, we're going to be releasing this book right in the middle of primaries it's just not going to work. People are going to be focused on the rat race of the presidential primaries, and they're not going to care about this book. I mean, it's not Super Tuesday, but the book was coming out on the same day as, as the primaries originally in like many swing states. And we were just going to get engulfed. And so we finally made this decision. I, I really pushed for this, for the book to come out in mid-April, two weeks before the next big primary and two weeks after the last big primer So there, there was this like three or four week window where there really weren't any primaries, at least among major states or swing states. Obviously, we made that decision long before any of us had heard anything about the COVID- coronavirus. So <laughs> when it came out, I was really, I just didn't know how to process it because obviously I was excited to share this with the world, but it was literally, I think at that point, I came out, I think on the most lethal day for fatality, I mean, the coronavirus, I mean, it was horrible for everyone that, that happened to in all those families. So I felt weird talking about the book in this, but I guess as this has continued and, and constitutional crises have continued to arise, the book is kind of finding an audience. And the thing that's been so affirming for me is high school government teachers and civics teachers writing Amazon reviews and saying that they really like this book and they love it and they're giving it to their students. You know, again, they're okay with a little bit of cursing, but that they really find it useful. And so, especially during a time where we're learning virtually, it's making me really happy to know that people are using this this book as a way to kind of catch up on, on civics and government. It's been very strange just seeing everything happen and people sort of go, I, I keep seeing amendments trending. I've never seen amendments trending before this <laughs> this year, but I've seen the 10th Amendment trending. I've seen the 3rd Amendment trending. I've seen the, uh, the 1st Amendment trending. I mean, it's truly bizarre. And so I think it just goes to show how devastated our country has been by this decrease in civics education, really in the last two decades, especially. So I think that we're waking, realizing that this is way more important than the time we've been giving it in our schools. And and so if, if my book can be a part of that resurgence, then it will not be for naught.
1: Well, my best friend Sarah bought me the book and sent it to me after hearing you on Throwing Shade, I think it is. And she loves that podcast in addition so to loving awesome. ours. Obvi. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> she heard you talk and she was like, uh, Lisa will love this book. And she was right. And then we covered it. If you're anybody like me who really believes in American ideals and the, the principles and the things that we espouse, but are very sad about the fact that we're not reaching them, I found this book very comforting in the fact that like, yes, the framers had had big intentions and goals. But also, we're like, we don't know what we're doing. And we expect you to figure it out, which made it, made me feel hopeful in a way. And like, we're not locked into this antiquated idea. And like you said, it doesn't mention white men. We just interpret it that way because, of course, that's who wrote it. So it's up to us to keep it fresh and alive and make it anew. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I felt the same way, just the way you broke it down and with humor, which was so brilliant, just made me go like, oh, okay, like I can, this is a bite-sized chunk of this. And here are the steps that I can take that I actually know legally make a difference.
2: Well, thank you for all of that. And and I think that humor is so important in contextualizing because I think it makes it, it makes the information feel on the level. It feels like you're meeting people, you know, um, eye to eye rather than looking down on them. And that's the thing that I feel like gets in the way. And I'm not here to attack, journalists. Journalists do an incredible job and a a public service. And I'm certainly not here to attack professors because they pass down information, but there is a level of superiority that comes through in a lot of writing about our founding documents and a lot of discussing them where it feels kind of, you know, patronizing or, or pedantic sometimes. And I thought of this, I wanted to make it because I'm learning this information largely new for the first time as well even though i knew, you know, some of it. If you look at it as like a percentage, i probably knew, i don't know, maybe 5% of what was in there, 10% of what was in there to be honest if that. But i wanted it to be, you know, somebody coming with me kind of on a journey to explore it for in many ways the first time or lots of parts of it for the first time. And i thought of it as if i had an open bar tab and 4 hours with a friend, how would i explain the constitution to them rather than someone being like, you know, here are my legal credential and, and just trying to like pontificate or seem like I'm smarter because that I think tunes people out and it makes them feel stupid for not knowing something when the reality is that we don't teach this document nearly enough as we should. And we've largely removed it from schools due to the cuts in civics and government. So I think by making something feel not, you know, coming from on high, but something that is like, accessible on the level, meeting people where they are. I think that framing device is so important to help the information stick because it's hard to get people to participate in something if they think that it's too complicated or too, you know, hard to understand, or they don't know where to insert themselves. But this is, you know, I think the approach in making it accessible and calling out the weird stuff, like, yeah, why? the why? Of course, there are tons of ship stuff in there, like everything, there's ships all over it. I mean, it's yeah, they didn't have airplanes, <laughs> they didn't have cars, like, they wanted to go around, you know, long distances. It was either horse or or ship. So, like, yeah, of course, don't was tons ship of ships. all
0: over my constitution. Exactly,
2: exactly. <laughs> you know, calling out the weird, unusual things, which is largely, you know, what I learned from you know, studying comedy, and, and and that has been helpful for taking something weird and esoteric and inaccessible, and kind of you know, pulling it out in a in a simple way.
0: And I love that because. Your book makes the Constitution feel like it belongs to me and to all of us, which it does. But it didn't really feel like that before. It's like you were saying, you know, my sense was like, oh, that's for lawyers to figure out. That's for the Supreme Court. You know, that's not something that's actually my document. And speaking of this, if you could amend the Constitution, what would you add or change or include?
2: I would add three amendments. And bringing it to full, full 30, and not in particular order, but these are the three that I would add. One would be an anti gerrymandering amendment to make partisan gerrymandering illegal once and for all. This is an issue that keeps getting punted to the states because there's, you know, the Supreme Court has found grounds for ruling racial gerrymandering unconstitutional but in a lot of states how are they deciding who you know is in a political party or in which political party and gerrymandering along racial lines and they're saying it's because they're uh, you know in a certain party and not because of their race but courts have found that that to be a very nebulous argument at best and the truth is that partisan gerrymandering still is not illegal and we're coming up on an election which is going to be our last chance to decide people who are going to redraw the lines in most states for the next 10 years. And I think gerrymandering, if you're taking if you're taking the competitiveness out of elections, then people in power no longer have anyone to hold them accountable because their re-election, and there are no term limits in you know, legislative seats, they can just keep holding office because no one's going to hold them accountable because they've ensured their own re-election. So I think that's one of the real fundamental breakdowns. So I would say an anti-partisan gerrymandering amendment, and that would mandate independent redistricting commissions so that the people who are in office aren't, you know, drawing their own districts, which is what happens in most states. So that's number one. Number two would be publicly financed elections. The corrupting influence of money in in our government, our political process has had such a corrosive effect again on the legislatures, on Congress. And number three is a right to vote amendment. Because as I was mentioning earlier, we don't have the right to vote. If our states give us the right to vote, it can't be taken away because of our sex, because of our race, because of our our age being 18 plus. But we don't fundamentally have a right to vote. And there actually was just an amendment that was introduced in the Senate by Dick Durbin, who's a U.S. Senator from Illinois, co-sponsored by a lot of other senators, that is a fundamental right to vote, proactively amendment for all citizens of the United States. Although I would go even further and say, according to the Constitution, there's nothing about non-citizens not being able to vote. They voted for 140 some odd years in the United States in federal, state, and local elections. It's only been since 1926 that every state has banned non-citizens from voting, but this is something that has been a norm for longer in America than it hasn't been. So- I would say those three amendments, anti-gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, public mandating publicly funded elections to get rid of companies, you know, because in many states, you can just give unlimited money to candidates for governor or candidates for uh, secretary of state or state legislature. Like in Texas, if you are an individual, not a corporation, but a rich individual, say you have $300 million, as an individual, you can write a $50 million check to a candidate for running for for governor. Because those are states. So states make their own campaign finance laws. So there's nothing to uh, stop them from doing that. So there are federal campaign laws, but there's so much corrupting money at the the state and local level. So I would do those three amendments and then giving people the fundamental right to vote, not these sort of half-assed protections if you have them amendments, but fundamentally giving everyone an active right to vote. So I would do those three.
0: That's incredible. And I feel like that would fix so many of our core issues. So listen, I'm just going to write an email to the White House real quick. and make it happen. <laughs>
2: write it to Congress. Don't worry about it. <laughs> write it to Congress. Because, you know, I mean, you know, what's interesting is the president has no uh, involvement whatsoever in the amendments process. It's all Congress and the, and the state legislatures. I would say write to your state legislators, that is where so much power lies. A, we've always been taught that government has, you know, three branches and they're co-equal branches and they have checks and balances. And half of that's true. Half of that's a lie. The true part is that they have checks and balances. They can check each other, balance each other out. But the lie is that they're co-equal. It's very clear that the legislature, Congress, our state legislatures, are the drivers of everything. They write the laws. They have the most power. The executive branch enforces it. The courts interpret the laws if there are disputes. But it is truly Congress that is supposed to be the driver. And it's the things that are fundamentally broken about Congress, gerrymandering and campaign finance laws and lobbyist influence, that is causing it to not work. And so that's why you have, you know, the executive branch going around and trying to make laws through executive orders or the courts legislating from the bench, so to speak. It's because the the engine of the car is broken. And so you have all these people like trying to push it and do things to get it to go, but we really need to repair the engine. So those are the things that I think get to the fundamental problems.
0: Here's a wild card question for you because you have done so much press around your book so far. Is there a question that you rarely or never get asked in interviews that you'd love to talk about? That's a really good question.
2: When it comes to the amendment process, just the idea of who and what, and this is something that I want to kind of explore, but who and why did we put forth the idea that the Constitution shouldn't be changed? And why did we take something that is clearly set up to be changed? And when did it become you know the sort of assumption or 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 the argument the idea put forward that it's supposed to stay the same and that's something i think a lot about because you hear things about originalism and textualism and these sort of approaches from the supreme court but that's something that i i guess this is a question for myself that i would want to you know maybe explore at some point is why do we have this perception and also the thing the the big question that i'm trying to figure out myself is when exactly did we start to really heavily cut civics before the last 20 years? Because in the 50s and 60s, we had classes like American government, civics, foundations of democracy, and U.S. history. And that was normal in many public schools. Today, only 16% of states require a year of civics or government K through 12. And I can point to the cuts in the last 20 years, 18 years, really, since No Child Left Behind. But It feels like my parents and and my parents' generation has a much better command of civics and government, at least structurally, than younger generations. And why is that? And is there a moment, you know, because I find it really fascinating. We had all these classes in the 50s and 60s. And what did you see in the 1960s? You saw heavy protests around civil rights. It was the protest that led to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. You saw protests around the Vietnam War the Vietnam War protests led to the uh, 26th Amendment, you know, protecting voting rights for people 18 and up. You saw a lot of real changes.
1: I think you just answered your
2: question. Of Indian <laughs> up civics, But like, was there a <laughs> moment in the wake? So at some point in the 1970s and 80s, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and talking to colleges and universities. Where was the moment? Was it an accident or would did something really, really happen? And that's kind of the thing that I that I really want to is As I guess the question myself. So I guess, I guess the answer to your question is there are questions that I would like to continue to explore to be able to answer. And that's the main one.
1: Sounds like somebody's cooking up their next book. <laughs> I
2: guess
0: so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but make it a board book for babies.
2: I will.
0: And Ben, where can people find you on social media? Because I know every single person listening is going to want to follow you and learn more and follow your work for the next, let's say, 12 decades. decades. Yeah. So where can they where can they find you?
2: All right. So for the next 120 years, I will be available at, <laughs> it's at that Ben Sheehan on across um, uh, Instagram and Twitter. And then I also run an account called at OMGWTFVote that does two things. One, it talks about incidents that have been whitewashed over in our history since after the Civil War. And some of them are pretty tough, really tough lessons, but they're things I think are really important to understand where we are. And they're things that have been removed from our history books, really like surgically removed and carefully removed.
0: What do you mean? I think history is always a very accurate portrayal. history very I accurate. learned is exactly. history.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, I was reading an article that, you know, so many people, mainly white people, learned about the Tulsa race massacre from HBO's Watchmen. And the truth is that there was an incident like that, you know, maybe not that high of a death count, but almost an incident like that, multiple, almost every year since the Civil War. And they've just been totally removed and from our history books. So that's one thing which I think is important to know and also to motivate people to make, you know, real systemic change when it comes to race and, and the criminal justice system. But the other thing is just basics on how government works. Like, what does an attorney general do? What does a DA do? What does our president do? What powers does the vice president have? So it's sort of like the feed of the, of the it's just an Instagram account, but the feed, the feed is like helpful, like, you know, job information, sort of hopeful. And then the timeline is, uh, the hiss, the highlights are literally a, a timeline year by year, a different incident from a year since the Civil War that has been kind of removed or overlooked in our,
1: in our Doing schools. the Lord's work, Ben
0: Sheehan. And we will put all of the links to that in show notes. So as you're listening, it's all just underneath a quick flick and a press. And as our very last question for you, Ben, before we wrap, this is maybe the craziest and most intense question you've ever been asked. What kinds of snacks do you think the founding fathers ate at their meetings?
2: I hope they ate snacks that were, how do I say this? To paint the picture of the meeting, it was extremely hot in (laughs) Philadelphia in a small room. I went to the room where the Constitution was written in Independence (laughs) Hall uh, in Philadelphia. And it was May 25th to September 17th. So you're talking about a room with up to 55 uh, men dressed heavily. (laughs) Wearing wigs. Wearing wigs (laughs) with no air conditioning. So Mm. I hope... If they had snacks, they left the room and gave it a chance to air out and weren't all crammed in there <laughs> eating together because it truly could not have been, from what it sounds like, a more miserable experience spending, you know, the entirety of every day and in a crammed room with no AC, heavily dressed, arguing I don't know. I I hope they. they For today's snack
1: break, we're serving uh, truffle infused blue cheese, right? And (laughs) warm ale
0: (laughs) indoors. That's why there. That's why there were so many ships in the document too. They're all just imagining like the sea breeze blowing through their wig. Going
2: on a cruise.
0: Ben, thank ben, you thank so you much. So much.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been a delight.
0: Thank you for your brilliant book. Everybody, there is a link to it in show notes. Support Ben, support this important work. And we like to end every episode by saying life is abundant because it truly works in any context.
1: I might amend <laughs> it. Speaking of amendments, I'm going to amend it Excuse for this episode me. to May your constitutional understanding be abundant. Would you all join me in that? I would would love love to. Okay, great. And with that, may your constitutional constitutional understanding understanding
0: understanding
1: be abundant.
0: Abundant.
1: Yes. Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Sav. Inimitable.
0: There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at G-H-Y podcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please <laughs> subscribe, rate, and review because it helps